of Los Altos Institute's uh, 13 Lectures on Original Doctor Who by Stuart Parker. Uh, these episodes are being made available as a free service by our institute. They include uh, both a lecture and question and answer session for each class. However, you may find the question and answer sessions are a little choppy because part, some participants have requested that their voices and remarks be removed. To the face of evil. So this is probably... No, it's, it's not my favorite. City of Death is still my favorite. But depending upon what side of uh, the bed I get out of in the morning, this one comes awfully close. Maybe my favorite on a bad day. Uh, less so on a good day. Uh, now, there's... Uh, so we have this story of the doctor not remembering that he's already been there, perhaps because he hasn't got there yet, uh, arriving on this planet and discovering that... Um, uh, gradually discovering that uh, a uh, computer... Um, has um, integrated his personality into part of a larger disordered personality. Uh, the computer's name is Zoannon. So first of all, a few words about who and what Zoannon was. Um, so during the barbarian invasions of the Roman Empire, uh, there were, you know, we, we have our recitation of the different Germanic tribes that um, joined uh, the Roman army as federati, as semi-sedentary subjects of the Roman Empire. Um, they were admitted to membership in the empire in exchange for the delivery of military service. Uh, I think one of the best ways of showing how the so-called barbarians or Germans or Federati worked um, is probably in um, Denis Arcand's film, The Barbarian Invasions. Uh, it's um, set in Quebec during neoliberal austerity. And... Uh, so you have this system, this Quebec, Quebecois welfare state that is falling apart, right? That there have been cuts by Bouchard, cuts by Landry, cuts by everybody, right? That it's a, it's a cross-partisan consensus. There you are, Michael. Um, yeah, there's this, um, oh, you're logged in as me because you're right, because you had to run movie group. We can both be me. Uh, so... Um, well, your name says me, my name. 
Uh, and I assume that's because you've logged in using the Institute account, which is fine. There we go. So uh, anyway, in Arkan's um, attempt to adapt the fall of Rome to the modern world, he, um, he shows this Quebecois welfare state that's crumbling. And because of austerity, um, people are not getting proper health care. They technically have universal health care, but the hospital is so underserviced, they no longer practically have universal health care. They technically have all these services, but neoliberalism has gradually cut them to ribbons. And so the barbarians in the movie, uh, the movie is about a guy dying of cancer. And the barbarians in the movie are his son, who's an entrepreneur in New York now, and uh, a friend's daughter, who is a heroin addict. And between the two of them, they are able to get his cancer treated and his pain managed by infusing resources that are outside the system into the system. So the government isn't handing out opiates, so they pull opiates out of the black market. Uh, whenever there's a problem with providing services, um, the, uh, the, uh, the main character's son has a huge roll of American $20 bills and a huge roll of American $100 bills. And he just starts putting them down on people's counters until they change their behavior. And it's like, on the one hand, they're enemies of the system, right? They're enemies of drug prohibition. They're enemies of the dream of Quebec as an independent state, the idea of the welfare state this guy doesn't even agree with. But the point is that the system that exists has gone into a tailspin and it needs these resources from outside. And so it in so the key thing to understand about barbarian invasions is that the barbarians were invited in because they were providing things that the Roman system could no longer reliably provide itself. Uh, chief among these barbar barbarians, one of the first groups to become the Federati were the Goths. Uh, and initially, and they were one of the first of the Germanic tribes to convert to Christianity after joining the Roman Empire, before the Franks, uh, before um, the uh, 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 before the Vandals, they were very. They came in really early, and they came in because the Goths were already henotheists. Uh, that's what. Um, uh, that's what Islam and Judaism evolved out of. This idea that you have, you're part of a people, and although there are all kinds of gods, and they're powerful, and they do all these different things, uh, you are only allowed to worship one. And so uh, for the, um, uh, for the Judeans, of course, it's Yahweh. For the Goths, it's Zoannon. Uh, and Zoannon is, um, and again, it, it, there are some analogs to Jewish history here because um, 
this is like the period in uh, during the Exodus in that the holiest of holies is moving. Um, Zoannan is uh, what we would think of as Canadians as a totem pole. It is a huge idol that the Goths move with them and it's their primary idol to this God. So rather than being linked to territory, they're linked to Zoannan and Zoannan moves with the Gothic people. Uh, this makes it easier to understand and convert to Christianity. Um, and, it, uh, uh, and it also uh, allows them to adapt to moving to new territory uh, with greater ease because unlike Saxons or Franks, um, you know, that have um, uh, sacred groves, sacred springs, things like that as their primary locus of religion, um, it's, this, uh, it's this totem, it's this pillar, Zoannon, that the Goths follow. And the Goths move with it. And we can see how Zoannon, in terms of a choice of name, is a, is a pretty useful one here that um, it, uh, it functions, um, it's a magnet that's drawing the, its people to it. Um, it defines this territory and it is, as far as they're concerned, their one God. And its relationship to them is a lot like that of a henotheistic God uh, in that the Sevatim think that Zoannan is their god. The Tash think that Zoannan is theirs. And they think that they will beat the other tribe because Zoannan is helping only them. Uh, Zoannan's promises, which are all lies to his two peoples, are the kinds of promises you get from a henotheistic god, that I will raise you up. Uh, at the expense of the other people. So um, Zoannan, uh, as this uh, semi-embodied god uh, drawing people together, uh, this, is, this is the origin of the name. Now, this, if that's the origin of the name, it, um, I would say that there's a particular theory of what those gods, those early henotheistic gods represented that is argued pretty strongly in this show. And I'm reminded of a movie I, people kept recommending that I thought I would hate. So I, I never went, uh, but they did report a funny line of it to me in The Invention of Lying. Um, one of the things that happens is people invent the idea of God once they're able to lie. And there's a newspaper headline, Invisible Man in the Sky Kills Six when there's a car crash. Uh, and in this case, it's not Invisible Man in the Sky. The idea, uh, I think the idea of ancient divinity that the show's uh, writers are playing with is of invisible abusive parent in the sky. Uh, that um, like your standard henotheistic God, there are many elements of Zoannan's personality that resemble that of an abusive parent. 
in particular structures of random reward. You don't know that you'll get what you're promised when you do the thing the parent wants, but you can't be 100% certain you won't get it either. And random reward is, uh, as we can see, a, a big part of Zoanon. Um, he visits both good and bad things on his people, and there's always some reason for it. Now, I think we're, we can even guess a few things about what pathologically is wrong with the abusive parent. Um, in, uh, I'm not a big fan of the DSM-5, uh, mainly because I, I think the DSM-4, uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for uh, Mental Illness, um, I think that the DSM-4 does a wonderful job of what it calls um, B-cluster personality disorders. So there are four mental illnesses or, uh, that are classed as personality disorders in the DSM-4 that are very similar to one another. Antisocial personality disorder, sociopathy, uh, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and borderline personality disorder. Uh, and in many ways, these are really two disorders that are split along gender lines, that the, that the kinds of behaviors one sees in borderlines and histrionics are the same behaviors you see in narcissists and sociopaths just refracted through the gender of, uh, through the female gender. Um, in many ways, these four disorders are the same disorder in that someone's personality is malformed, a part of their personality that's especially malformed are their ego boundaries, their understanding of where they stop and other people start, where they stop and where the world starts. One of the things that's especially frightening about the historical era in which we live is that that personality architecture is now being increasingly treated as normal. Um, we expect, uh, so one of the features of narcissistic personality disorder is the experience of narcissistic injury. What narcissistic injury is, is essentially catching your own reflection in a mirror and being upset by the discrepancy between how you imagine yourself and how you look. And of course, the main mirror we encounter is other people. So for a narcissist, if a person perceives them in a way other than they wish to be perceived, that person is understood as an ontological threat that um, they're not reflecting the reflection I want back to me. Therefore, they have to be destroyed so that my internal state can return to normal. In essence, one of the premises of narcissism and these other personality disorders is the belief that other people's thoughts about us are ours, not theirs. 
So there are pieces of us contained in other people's minds all the time. And we're very angry if we think there's a discrepancy between who they think we are and who we think we are. Uh, another feature of narcissism and these other personality disorders, although I think it's primarily the narcissistic one that they're featuring in the show, is um, splitting. Uh, this sense that the people out there are either good or evil, um, this desire to polarize the world into in a sort of Islamic theological sense, right? The kingdom of peace and the kingdom of war. Uh, that outside of what I am is the kingdom of war. It's full of conflict, but the things around me are the kingdom of peace because they do what I want, they say what I want, they feel the way I want. And so um, uh, it's really one of the things that has, I think, uh, been most uh, unhelpful for me in life is the ability to recognize narcissists. Because if they can see you seeing them, then you've moved to the kingdom of war uh, and you have to be destroyed. But there's also this problem that when you don't really know where you stop and other people start, your sense of the ontological reality of other people isn't really there. You understand that there are these things that are shaped roughly like you, that make sounds roughly like you, that you can make agreements with or have relationships with, but you don't think that the other creatures that are walking around that look like you have an inner life like yours. Um, you tend to imagine them as things that are part of you or things that part of your kingdom of peace or part of the kingdom of war, non-compliant things. I uh, was raised by a parent who always uh, told me that, um, um, that the experience of having me as an adult was very upsetting because um, there was a part of her body walking around that was not under her control. Uh, and um, this uh, generated considerable upset and worry. Uh, and we, um, we find, uh, unsurprisingly, that these personality disorders are often hereditary. And there's a big debate about that. Um, some people believe there's a genetic component. Uh, and I... While there may be a genetic component, I don't see any need to bring genetics into it. Being raised by someone with a cluster B personality disorder is likely to give you one. Um, they're contagious. If a person with this disorder runs your life, you start thinking like them. And um, so one of the other features we see is the externalization of internal conflict that because ego boundaries are porous and the other creatures out there are just props for you to stage your inner drama, your inner conflict, then, um, uh, then you often externalize um, your, uh, 
the social conflict, uh, the internal conflicts within you, and you're able to make them play out outside your body where they're less stressful. It's less, you're under less stress to, if you are able to externalize um, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, another feature, of course, is that you have these very brittle, um, often um, perfectionist uh, understandings um, of the self. Narcissists, borderlines, etc., often concurrently believe that they are the best, most virtuous person in the world and the worst, most disgusting, most vile, most grotesque person in the world, which is why it's so important to control what other people see about you. In, uh, it's so important to control what other people see about you because you don't know which of these two conflicting images you have of yourself they're going to see. Uh, so there are often outrageous claims of infallibility, of perfection, etc. We see a bunch of these in the doctor's dialogues with Zoannan, right? Where he's having an argument with Zoannan and then Zoannan says, I will think you no more. I will think you no more. And so there's this con and, and the doctor won't go away. There's this confrontation that's like, wait a minute. I thought the doctor was my thoughts. I thought it was part of me. Why won't it go away when I say to stop thinking it? And then of course that problem is externalized. Um, in the form of trying to kill the doctor, that that contradiction pops out of the mind into the world. Another feature we see in this is, we have done nothing wrong. There have been no mistakes. No, I made the mistakes, so I don't, I made the mistake. We have made no mistakes. Uh, so you're also rolled into, um, you aren't, you aren't, you aren't, if you are part of the kingdom of peace and not the kingdom of war, you may well be rolled into um, the self-aggrandizing perception that the, uh, that the, uh, that the cluster B has rather than the abject grotesque uh, self-perception that that entity has. Hey, Stuart. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you that last two sentences, can you uh, say that again? Because I, I feel like that was really significant and I, I feel like it just zipped right through my head. <laughs> yeah, understood. I, I, uh, obviously, these are, this is a particularly stressful yet fulfilling subject to talk about. So let's say that slower. Um, so the creature will have these ego boundaries that will annex you or part of you to it. And you don't know which part of it you're being annexed to. If you're in the kingdom of war, you become part of the self that it understands to be grotesque and abject and ugly and worthless. But there is also the chance that the creature will annex you to itself and you will become part of its image of itself as beautiful and perfect and infallible and good. And one might have both experiences, one might have either experience, 
but the extension of these ego boundaries past the body into other people, um, these personalities conscript you into uh, the wars they're staging, the stories they're telling. Uh, and um, we, of course, see this um, through Zoannan. We see the splitting with the Sevatim and the Tesh. We have uh, the, uh, uh, the sen- uh, we have its sense of itself in, uh, in both forms. Uh, we have, um, uh, and what's great about this, oh yes, the last thing is there is a way in which um, these disorders often stunt the imagination, that it's very hard to imagine other ways of being, other ways of doing things, other, other experiences because there is this core lack of empathy. There, isn't, there is an understanding that the people one, um, that the people around you are not in the same ontological class as you, except insofar as you have annexed certain parts of them to your larger social body. And uh, we see this um, with, uh, with figures like Stalin, right? What's so striking about the art, the architecture, the political theory, the economic theory under Stalin is that uh, Stalin can't imagine very much. So there's this confidence on the part of Stalin's Soviet Union that it has thought all the thoughts that there are to think, that it knows all that there is to know, that there are no questions about the nature of the communist state. There are no questions about the end of capitalism. There are no questions about the system of relationships around us. Everything has been answered with shitty brutalist architecture and shitty Soviet realist art. Uh, And so one of the things that often really frustrates uh, narcissists in particular is they often imagine themselves as great artists. Um, But the imaginative empathy necessary to engage uh, in both things. Well, I think the neo-brutalist movement has got things going for it. Uh, So uh, there's this sense that, um, uh, so the sense that the world is library. Pardon (laughs) me? Robarts, yes. Well, a library that was... um, that was designed to make you feel so squirrely and so like you're being buried alive that it inspired Umberto Eco to write Foucault's Pendulum. Not Foucault's Pendulum, uh, Name of the Rose. Name of the Rose was based on Robart's library and each of the librarians is actually somebody Umberto Eco ran afoul of when he had a carol at the Robart's library. So, I remember I'd never heard the term brutalist with respect to architecture until I got to Toronto. Uh, my friend Piers took me for this little uh, tour. Really? Yeah, wow. took me for this, this little tour of the U of T campus, which was very funny. Like, oh, that's our park. It's called Queens Park. And I said, do you know the legislature's back behind those streets? Oh, really? Uh, but when we got to Robart's library, Piers said, 
This is one of the finest examples of neo-brutalist architecture in North America. And I'm looking at it. It's like, what the hell is that? It's supposed to be a peacock. It's like, a peacock? How do you? Anyway, I never really saw it. I came home. I said to Jeff Ranger, yeah, so apparently SFU is part of this tradition called neo-brutalist architecture. And Ranger goes, neo-brutalist, as in, is that gargoyle holding a makeshift knife? Uh, it's like, no, not, not exactly. Uh, although I think that would be an excellent architectural tradition. In any case, this um, uh, often narcissists will imagine themselves to be great artists, great creators, but the imaginative empathy that uh, is necessary to be that or do that is often cut off. Uh, and uh, this, again, for produces further splitting, further externalization of contradiction. Um, and uh, again, we see that played out, I think, very well in Face of Evil. And for this reason, I would put the thing together. I would say that I think the author's thesis is that henotheistic societies um, imagined the uh, imagined their protector god not just as an abusive parent, but as this kind of abusive parent. Uh, this um, that their sense of the god's capacity to go beyond itself is inculcated by a narcissistic parent's belief that it contains you. So um, I, uh, I think that's, um, that's most of what I wanted to say to sort of brief us for our conversation. I think this prompts a lot of really interesting questions that I, I'm interested in people's takes on. For instance, what is Neva's consciousness? Uh, I think that's a, um, uh, I think Neva is by far one of the most interesting characters in um, really of, uh, of, of that whole season. Um, and we can sort of, does his consciousness evolve? Has he always known? Uh, lots of interesting questions about the inner life of Neva. And of course, one of the reasons that um, these questions are possible, one of the reasons his inner life can be opaque is that Zoannan doesn't fully understand Neva to have an inner life until the personalities are pulled apart and its ego boundaries snap into a reasonable formation. So uh, welcome, Elena. Hi. Uh, I, uh, we've, um, we just, I just finished doing the, uh, the lecture, which is pretty short, 30 minutes uh, wanted, and we're just now going into uh, discussion. Um, and uh, I want to lead off with Jonathan. Uh, he said something in the chat that I thought I'd follow up. Um, Christianization of Europe. Uh, where did you want to take this further? 
Well, because the thing is, I see the person, the personality of Neva isn't just the personality of a henotheistic god. Because yes, henotheistic gods as abusive parents makes complete sense. My own reading of the Bible, I think, supports that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Neva, no, sorry, what what Zoanan seems so- to embody, in fact, is the ideology of the church and of, to some extent, Christendom more broadly. Especially in terms of its relationship, for instance, to the Jews, which is why I think I'm the one saying it. Because Zoanan basically says, there are two ways to live which are perfect and beautiful, and I love them both. One is the way of the book, and one is the muscular pagan life that is natural to us. And I see no contradiction between these two things, and I will perfect them both at the same time. And then what happens is the originator of the soul of the book, that is to say the doctor, just sort of wanders in and it drives him completely insane. He cannot accept that this thing that he is has an external reference that it can't control, that exists inside its universe. And so as soon as the doctor manifests inside Christendom, it must be destroyed. Oh, I and love it, this idea. And remember that you said, I mean, you said the Doctor Who villains are always the Nazis. So at the end of the story, what we have is not only is, is the church, is, is not only is this Christian Nazi thing just trying to destroy the Jewish figure of the Doctor, it's willing to commit suicide to do so and tellingly, there is this moment when threatened with an external enemy, it abandons its fantastic new super weapon that they're going to use to win the war in order to carry out this suicidal genocidal plan instead. It's self-sabotaging in exactly the way the Nazis were towards the end of the war. So there, there's this deliberate historical callback to that. And, and also there's the experience of, I think, European people in, become, in, in pagans becoming Romans and Romans becoming Christians. There's this moment where the Sever team actually kind of figure out what's going on. And Leela says this tremendously wise thing. She asks this question, are we their descendants or are we their captors? Which is the question that all Europeans have to ask themselves themselves in, re- in relation both to their Roman and their Jewish cultures, because actually the Germanic barbarians right. <laughs> say, but we are Celts, but we are monotheists. Are we descended from these people or did we just capture them and eat their culture? We don't know what we are. <laughs> and it doesn't bother Leela, but it really bothers Zoanna. Yes, the um, uh, the uh, the captors versus um, uh, the the yes descendants versus captors uh, is played out again in uh, full circle in Tom Baker's last season in the only unsolicited script ever uh, filmed by the show. Yeah. So I mean, the simple uh, problem yeah. in European life, which is made explicit in the British Israelite conspiracy. Um, the only, you know, who may who, who literalize this. Um, but the other thing about so that was that was sort of my take on on where that whole ideological framework came from. 
because I mean, the doctor is simultaneously Jesus and Lucifer in this story, or Jesus and the Antichrist, depending on which side of the wall you're on. But the other yeah. thing, of course, that is important in interpreting this story is that it's forbidden planet. It's very explicitly forbidden planet. Right? Do you have more about absolutely? No, explain that, please. Okay, in the movie Forbidden Planet from what, 1963, 57? 56. 56. Uh, from, yeah, from 1956, basically, <clears throat> it's the film that's a paradynamic film that sets up most science fiction in the 1960s and 70s. Oh, and, and, and onward. <laughs> and onward, yeah. I, the Twilight Zone actually used its uh, props all the time, actually. Uh, yeah, they're both well, as did Star Trek. Yes. Right, like the transporter room is the same. Yeah, I mean, it seems like um, the first episode of Star Trek. Well, exactly. And it, it almost was because the captain was Leslie Nielsen, who actually auditioned for the role of Kirk. Oh, yeah. my. Things would have been so different. <laughs> Jewish <laughs> Canadian versus a non-Jewish Canadian. All right. Well, no, they're Canadians either way. So what difference does it make? Um, <laughs> Yiddishkeit versus not Yiddishkeit. <laughs> well, yeah, the, okay, well, the thing is, Star Trek wasn't a very, despite being run by Jews, well, I mean, the ship was run by Jews, but, this, but the, the universe of Star Trek is extremely Christian, right? I mean, that's the notable thing about Star Trek, that no one is, no one is overtly religious, but the universe is Christian and everyone thinks, seems to think that's completely normal. And that's also true of Forbidden Planet. And I think it's important for this story. Now, we know it's Forbidden Planet because you have these invisible, shapeless monsters wandering around killing people, which happens in Forbidden Planet, and the Doctor calls them monsters from the id, which is what they are called in Forbidden Planet. In Forbidden Planet, there is a giant machine, which is simultaneously the great machine of, of Epsilon 3 and Babylon 5 and the Death Star. Visually, it's identical to both of those things. Um, the one in Babylon 5 has essentially the same function. Um, but but the function of the machine in Forbidden Planet is to do whatever its masters wish. It just it just does, you know, they want things and it does them. It's the ultimate technology. Um, and so what it does is that, but because humans arrive on the planet and they have these uncontrolled, uneducated ids because we're just a bunch of evolved monkeys, it creates monsters because that, that start murdering other people because that's what we all want all the time. It's just that we don't say so. But the original, and in fact, that's what doomed the original inhabitants of the planet who built the machine, that they did not reckon with their own its. So they were killed by monsters from their its. In this case, they were called the Krell. Instead. Hmm? They were called the Krell. Yes, right. <clears throat> the Krell. And we don't know anything about the Krell, except that all their doorways are pentagonal, which is meant to imply something about their body shape. All the doorways in Babylon 5, by the way, are pentagonal. Really? They are. EMS loved, loved Forbidden Planet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and some of the doors on the Death Star are, like the, door, you know, the big blast doors and so on. They're completely lifted from the great machine on, on the Forbidden Planet. But the, other re but the reason that's important is twofold. One, Forbidden Planet is... Um, the Tempest. It's accepted to be a, a model of the Tempest. So in this story, the oh, doctor, we're adapting the Tempest so, out of remove. Yes, it's yeah, exactly. it's loosely based on the Tempest. 
That's right. Which is why presumably the, the guy who ends up leading the Sevatev is named Caleb. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, no way. He loses the, uh, the the power struggle when they're arguing at the end. He's like in third place. But yes, well, he, I agree. He, he, yeah, okay, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The point is, he's the yeah. leader of the Sever team because Leela leaves. Yes. So okay, um, how a struggle works out. So here's the thing. Okay, so the Doctor is is not only Jesus and Lucifer. He's Ariel and Prospero. Prospero. Yes, and at the end he solves the problem by burning his books. He deletes his mind from the computer. Yeah, I should have seen more of the Tempest adaptation stuff there because I uh, I have such a low opinion of Prospero uh, that uh, that would make sense. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so it uh, I can see. Yes, yeah, structurally it references Prospero, even though in many ways. Right, what saves Prospero is his imaginative empathy and being able to think about his daughter's inner life, uh, which... Uh, yeah, well, the relationship has yeah. kind of changed. The Absolutely. Because, in, because the thing is that who's the Miranda character in the story? It's obviously Leela. But Leela in this story doesn't wind up with Thomas, the guy who clearly fancies her. And, and she doesn't fall in love with one of the strange new Tesh people, she clearly just falls in love with the doctor. Yes, and I, I think that, um, well, it's, <clears throat> I, I wouldn't go so far as to say fall in love with, but what I would say is it's interesting to note that um, the uh, plan was to not replace Elizabeth Sladen immediately, but to have a series of one-off companions for the balance of uh, Sarah Jane's last season and to keep the last one. And uh, people found, even before they showed episode one, people found the script was so strong uh, and Louise Jameson was such a good choice that they scrubbed the original plan because in the original plan, Leela does stay behind. And uh, uh, just as in the original Full Circle, Adric stays behind. Uh, and yeah, so other thoughts on this whole mass of stuff, Christianization, personality disorders, uh, Shakespeare. I think this is pretty rich so far. Uh, what are other people's reactions? Joey? Well, um, you know, uh, I kind of uh, was going to lead off with this whole forbidden planet thing because to me, it was totally obvious. As soon as uh, Thomas was starting to shoot the invisible um, creatures and you see it's Tom Baker's face, it's so obvious the monsters of the id from Forbidden Planet uh, that you know, you, the whole thing just seemed to be a, in some ways a, a ripoff, but a, a, a friendly ripoff. In other words, more of a, a loving... Um, a friendly ripoff is an homage. Homage, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, I mean, uh, that, that's what I, definitely it's a tribute, I think. Uh, and very much so. I mean, it's not, the, again, the film is so influential from 1956 forward uh, with science fiction that it's kind of hard if you're writing science fiction in 1976 and a TV show to boot, that you don't have that as one of your visual uh, and narrative um, references. So, uh, that, and of course, 
in it, the way that I would see the um, computer was kind of thinking of itself as subconscious was actually causing uh, creatures to be monsters that could actually destroy itself too. And that was part of the plot in Forbidden Planet. Um, the thing that I also thought was pretty interesting too though, is this whole dichotomy between are these people from the same crew? They're from the same crew. Why is there the study happening? And um, that part was the part that I liked how they built that up. That you saw one group that was still technological, that knew what they were doing with the equipment, and you had these other primitives who, you know, were wearing uh, spacesuit um, gloves as hats. Didn't know what the hell this technology was. I um, couldn't understand it. So that to me was pretty interesting and in seeing how they were studying and how the computer was studying the strong instructions that way. The other thing, again, going with that, just simply, uh, it's kind of funny that uh, the, uh, Leela seems to you know, really like the doctor in reality, apparently, uh, Tom Baker did not get along with Jameson at all. They were two different castes or two different classes. And she was very much an upper crust woman who did not like Tom Baker in, uh, from what I've read. So correct me if I'm wrong. I have someone oh yeah, no, this is something we've talked about in previous <laughs> sessions. The, um, uh, that um, both Louise Jameson and Mary Tam uh, came out of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, which has had the same size intake class for over a hundred years. Uh, so yeah, I think it's 14 people a year, uh, and overwhelmingly it's, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the patricians of, um, of, of Great Britain who, uh, who occupy that class. So, um, anyway, what's into what I, uh, this doesn't happen in this show. Actually, no, it does. It begins even in this show. Um, the scene where the doctor threatens to uh, kill the guy with the jelly baby is the beginning of Tom Baker's campaign of terrorism uh, against the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Of, uh, I love that scene, by the way. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. This is why Tom Baker is my doctor. That was one of the, one of the things. The other thing was I couldn't stop laughing when he... Uh, uh, basically mentioned how he learned how to shoot a crossbow, you know, uh, <laughs> William Tell. When he said William Tell, <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing for about five minutes. Um, and then the other thing is, it's just, um, again, you know, Tom Baker, uh, just you see how he's able to improvise and do really great stuff with the, uh, with the material that's at hand. And again, you know, I... I, I just really loved seeing these sections where you could see there's a huge difference between this mid 1970s Doctor Who and mid 1980 mid 1980s Doctor Who, which was you know, <laughs> right. Um, really show it really like just showing these two episodes back to back, seeing this versus uh, the one that we saw. With, Vengeance uh, on Pharaohs. Vengeance of Pharaohs. I mean, they're like night and day. Uh, <laughs> You know that that was the that was the thing, and then the uh, uh, besides the William Tell thing, just uh, overall, you can just see that there's a sharpness that's there, even if it's not um, 
Terrence Dick doing uh, a lot of this stuff. It's still this this is like the prime Doctor Who. Um, yeah, I would I would the, track that this is the start of the golden age of the show in my view as Face of Evil. I think it's and it's that, here through um, um, yeah it's here through Horns of Nyman that's the golden age of the show. Yeah, and, and one other thing that it, it references too because it, it's um, do, uh, James Bond. He goes so where he goes to Leela when Leela kills uh, some guy coming through um, uh, a tent as they're trying to leave the city. And he goes, who gave you a license to kill? <laughs> okay. uh, and there's several times where they, they reference Bond uh, in this. And they're not referencing it in praise of Bond. It's to bury Bond. Because they don't need to use the trick. You know, they don't have to kill everybody that's out there doing the work that, you know, for whoever but it Lila is. Always does. But Leela does, Leela does kill. Um, she stops she, after, she and stops no, she after continues she killing people occasionally she throughout her she army does, as a she companion. Gets less violent as she's with the doctor, but she does she does continue to represent a level of of violence that the doctor is is opposed to throughout their run, which I think is one of the reasons they they work fairly well as a dynamic. Yeah, that, that conflict has expression in the interaction between the characters as well as the actors. Yeah, uh, and um, Leela, Leela clearly respects and admires the Doctor, but also has a very strong set of opinions of her own on how things should be done. And, you know, it, the, the conflict is very rich dramatically. I think it makes a, a very successful run for them. I'd also like to suggest that the conflict originates from another feature of Forbidden Planet. Which is? Which is that in Forbidden Planet, the Miranda is presented not only as innocent, but Edenic. And the fall actually occurs in Forbidden Planet when she starts to fancy Leslie Nielsen. Mm. And there's this moment when her pet, her pet tiger decides that she's actually neat and not just a friend. And the rest of the crew simply accepts that this is an obvious consequence of the fact that she's had a sexual awakening because she's met all these handsome American sailors. Like that's the most natural <laughs> conclusion to come to for why the animals now don't regard her as, as a friend. And, and it's an example of the universe being mysteriously Christian, right? It's like everyone just knows that this is how things work. <laughs> and that's so there's so... the shocking moment for Miranda in the Miranda character in Forbidden Planet, the, the you know, Will Robinson, the girl, whatever. Um, so, uh, sorry, go on. But that doesn't, that doesn't really happen with so much with Leela. Like she- well, No, but that's the point. Yeah. Leela yeah. never seems to develop a sexual attraction to anybody. And she acts like she has no concept of right and wrong forever. Oh, so she's a prelapsarian character. Yes. All um, the 17 are probably. Uh, right. I see. And now, Michael. No, no. I, I think she doesn't show an attraction to the doctor because she's not attracted to the doctor for the same reason she rejects all of the tribesmen because she's not attracted to them. But I, I don't think that's because she's not capable of feeling attraction. It's because I think she's looked around at the quality of the gene pool and said, no, nope. thanks. I'll pass. <laughs> 
I, I agree, actually, because she does, uh, she she does end up leaving to get to get married. Essentially, she she leaves the doctor for like she eventually finds someone and leaves the doctor for him. So I, I don't necessarily see her that way. In fact, I sort of see her as representing sort of um, a bit more, you know, primitive animalistic side rather than the Eudenic relapsarian side. I think there's um, just a, uh, I think that um, there's a, uh, to go back to what I, I said about Russell Davies very early on, there is a reason that it's the makers of Queer as Folk who bring the doc, bring Doctor Who back. And that is because I would say a mainstream reading of the text is that the doctor is, that the doctor is never sexually interested in a human companion and the human companions are not interested in him in that way. Uh, I think we can draw some brackets around Romana, but I think we can otherwise take the whole 26 year run and um, see how it would be very easy for a group of gay British men born in the 50s to decide that Doctor Who is the precursor to Will and Grace. Uh, Except uh, Peter Eccleston's uh, Doctor Who, Rose obviously loves him and she loves um, Yes, because they have to problematize it. They spend the whole new series problematizing the very thing that they liked about the old series. It's a great irony. They have to explore why people are not together, why they're not romantically involved. They're endlessly in the new series, they're endlessly asking questions about that and trying to work it through. Whereas um, in the old series, it's an unstated assumption. And because it's unstated and it's a core assumption, it never moves. It has a, it has a strength to it that a an extensively rehearsed and debated question does not. Uh, now, I wanted to check in um, with uh, uh, other people's general impressions of the show. Uh, Margaret, what did you uh, make of Face of Evil? Well, I thought that the part of Leela was inconsistent with what I considered the intelligence level of the tribes. Um, you know, she seems smart, 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 and they seem dumb, dumb, dumb. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was inconsistent. Um, I think part of the problem, of course, is that she, the, the actress spoke perfect Oxford English, and one would not expect perfect offered, you know, if you're talking about tribal groups. And then, um, although I liked her, um, and then the end, I thought, was rushed. Like her jumping into, you know, uh, his uh, spaceship. I thought somebody was saying, gee, we only have a minute left. <laughs> so let's do something. And I would have liked if it was a bit more parsed, you know. That was my kind of feeling. Uh, Michael, how did you like the show on rewatching it? Uh, I liked it more than I thought I would. There was uh, some very enjoyable parts there. I'm, I'm totally a sucker for um, ancient aliens 
storylines and uh you know primitive tribesmen with high-tech gear that they don't know what it is so they wear like the the space glove as the as the religious helmet i fucking love that stuff it just it absolutely cracks me up every time i see it um i also liked the um the mangling of the two tribes names it reminded me of that uh star trek episode when Kirk and the team are down on that planet and they start reciting their I believe this <laughs> the gobbledygook um, religious text and it turns out it's the American Declaration of Independence. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I I, I love that type or, of story. Uh, yeah. But did anybody besides myself think that her intelligence was not compatible? I mean, I loved it. I loved the whole thing. And yeah, when that's... she did step into the doctor's place, I was happy. But I kind of got the impression, you know, if I went to a tribe in Africa, would I find somebody so intelligent? That, do you know what I'm saying? Well, I, I think the these are descendants. At, at the very beginning of the episode, she clearly is smarter than everyone else in the room. Yes, yes. And at the beginning of the episode, I appreciated that because she is also a troublemaker in the tribe. She doesn't follow along with anybody else's guidance. She's a, she's a pain in everyone's ass for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I liked that they set her up as smarter than everybody else. The thing that I didn't like was that her character is supposed to be this great uh, warrior princess who is dangerous and her, um, her ability to fight is great. And yet in the third episode, or maybe it's the fourth episode, when they're inside the, uh, the original spaceship and they get into a scrap with the techs, she becomes completely useless in combat and gets a gentle shove and collapses on the floor. And then the doctor has to wrestle with uh, the tech. And I thought at the time, because it was so blatant that she's a vicious, unstoppable killer, except for this one moment in the show. And I have a feeling that some producer or somebody from standards and practices came down and said, boy, you know, we, we can't have her showing up the doctor this much. We got to show him as an, a little bit of a tough guy or something. We can't allow her to get away with this. But other than that, I also, Jonathan, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. I think Stuart objected to me interrupting. So carry uh, no, no. You, I was trying to just mess this thing up more. I wasn't trying to do that. I just did. Uh, Jonathan, say your thing, and then Michael wrap up, and then we'll move to okay. Alana. No, because I think the thing is that Leela loses a fight to one of her 17 colleagues as well. She gets poisoned, in fact. She could die. And then there's a point later. I mean, yes, she gets hit by a Tesh and gets badly winded at some point, which creates some necessary tension. But she also pulls off a, a great judo throw and looks really happy about it in the same corridor. I think she's a good fighter, but she's not the best fighter. She's not unstoppable, but she's pretty good. Mostly she takes people by surprise is the thing. What's good about her is her ruthlessness, not her technique. But as to her intelligence or her eloquence, I don't find that weird. I mean, I haven't been to Africa and, and Stuart has, he's talked to people. Uh, but my, my well, assumption- Well, I've never met a tribal person in Africa, obviously, because they're very <laughs> rare. <laughs> I suppose that's true. <laughs> um, and you weren't exactly wandering around in the jungles. But 
um, my, my impression of semi-literate people is that they pay a great deal more attention than we do to the words they speak. They have much more gravity. I found it, for instance, completely appropriate that in Firefly, in, in Firefly, Jane is the most eloquent character verbally because he's a semi-literate brute and words matter to him because it's all he ever, he ever has. He can't read hardly. <laughs> and May so- I also point out that- uh, Just, just one second here. Oh, Michael's gonna wrap up his I, assessment I, yeah, of I the show. I just wanna finish one, one last thing that I, um, when um, the doctor initially starts suspecting that he's caused all this problem for everyone because he's been there before. Mm -hmm. And then you come around the corner at the end of the first episode, the big reveal, there's his face. I wish, I wish, wish, wish it had been William Hartnell's face. Um, <laughs> I so wanted them to use a previous doctor's face. Yes, just that for some been beautiful lovely. continuity. But the... Um, all the stuff, Stuart, that you touched on in the beginning about identity and the uh, the uh, ego out of control and all the confusing shit and all that. I thought that was a wonderful way to for them to bring it in and kind of make it understandable for children. Because, you know, at the end of the day, this is still intended to be a children's show until, you know, they've like, well, we need to get the 20 year old male demographic in there. Let's bring in the barbarian princess. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I really enjoyed everything here. And to what Joey said earlier, uh, Tom Baker's improv is really clear in this show. It is so obvious when he has gone off script because his timing is too good and <laughs> it's magnificent. It, it is so perfect that you could take this scenes from this episode and say, this is a master of improvisation knowing that he is the best guy in the room and it's just flawless to see. Oh. And, uh, it seems very, uh, it seems very plausible to me that someone like that in her circumstance would seize the first chance to get the hell out of Dodge and just hang on to it. Like that seems very, seems very plausible. Every, so smart, I wasn't... every smart kid that grew up in a mill town had exactly the same uh, idea. <laughs> what? That's a ticket to university? Get me the fuck out of here. Yeah, exactly. Church. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, uh, so Alana, say yeah, more that, thing. I don't know. There's this whole sort of idea of, you know, of innocence and, you know, Edenic untouched places and all that, but the fact is, those places can be pretty damn boring if you're smart and happen to be born into one of them. And it, it's not at all surprising that if you're an intelligent person and want to and find yourself in that situation, that the chance to gain wider experience of the world and and more knowledge is something that you would, you know, latch onto. Um, which I think she does. Like she's she's someone who obviously does have a great deal of curiosity about the world, and uh, has to. And you know, in spite of the fact that she is obviously portrayed as as a fairly primitive character in some ways, she does have in common with the doctor. She does have this great curiosity about 
why things are the way they are and what what the world is like and what's really going on and what the what the the nature of things is and i think that's why she decides to go with the doctor at the end because why wouldn't you <laughs> if you were that kind of person in the world that she lived in and um, again sort of going back to uh uh the the stalinist omniscience right that that's one of the things that um, is, uh, um, you know, that a narcissistic despot seeks to attack. It's not intelligence, it's curiosity. Intelligence is a thing in the exactly. population that is, that is something that you can use. I mean, I really, I really felt like, um, you know, in the collapse of the eco-socialist party, um, it was very much the curious versus the incurious. Uh, that, um, that people who had a real sense of, were convinced they knew all they needed to know and were convinced of the knowability of the things that we were looking at, that really was the biggest predictor for um, who would side with whom in the end. And... Uh, so I think that it's, yes, the isolation of education, intelligence, and curiosity as have being in this complex dance is pretty useful. Edward, how did you like the show? I enjoyed it. Don't think I've seen this one before. So it was new to me. Um, the setting did remind me of the integral trees, the sort of columnists survey team that gets uh, trapped for generations with the vestiges of technology. Yeah, the vestiges. And it's interesting about the utility of the technology, right? That um, the seven team make right use of the stuff they have, that crazy gong. Um, is uh, it is evidence of critical thinking skills, right? It's not just the hat. Uh, I mean, the hat <laughs> is wonderful, but uh, the seven team are much more likely to see the technology, the lesser technology around them as an opportunity, as a utilitarian opportunity. Stuart, I wanted to quickly jump in there. There was something that we haven't discussed yet that I thought was really important was at the very beginning of the show when, um, what was the, the high priest guy? Um, we're introduced to uh, a conflict between church and state amongst the Sever team oh. right at the very beginning where part of uh, the tribe is chafing under the idea that you cannot question the Pope and there's a, another group that is saying, well, use your critical thinking skills and your common sense. Clearly, this is a terrible plan. And uh, we're tired of taking our orders from the invisible man in the sky. And um, I thought that was, they got to it really fast. And there was also the political intrigue when the doctor is finally inside the tribe's main area. And he's openly talking to Leela about, oh, well, here comes the backstab and, you know, here's the, you know, the political maneuverings going on in the background and, you know, the Vatican is just as corrupt as everybody else. And I, that was great. Yeah. What about Neva's consciousness? Um, I'm really interested in people's theories of what kind of person Neva was and what thoughts might have been inside his head at these moments where 
you know, it's like, what's wrong with him? Oh, too much, too quickly. Neva, Neva, hotline to God. Neva's not here. Can I take a message? Uh, but uh, there's this way in, in which, right, it turns out the tradition isn't wrong, that Neva is better positioned to figure out what's happening once more evidence becomes available than the secularists. That, um, I mean, it is amazing interesting. to have a secularization debate in a tribe of 25 people, but, but why not? <laughs> yeah, and how he operates once they get to the so-called Holy Land. And then, his re- like, yeah, his reaction was surprising. You know, here they are. They've arrived in the, ho- the Holy Land, but it's weird. Yeah, well, so he, rea- he reacts to the opposite of how in 2001. So I mean, instead of killing everybody, which was possible, and he did, he did electrify the wall so that um, uh, the the technicians or the tesh um, got electrocuted. Um, basically, he kind of was like a Hal character at the beginning of episode four because he lost his mind. He just lost the doctor. Then he separated the doctor's consciousness out of um, out of the memory bank. So, and was reconstituting a new personality. Um, but if you're comparing him to Hal and- Okay, are I'm we sure... talking about Neva or Zoan and I am completely lost? Neva, Neva. Okay. Neva's the computer. Yeah, Neva's so computer. he's at a certain point, the mind control is used on it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, but I, I'm just not, I'm just not under, anyway, never mind. I, I keep elaborating. Okay, uh, again, focusing on Neva losing its uh, identity, because at the end of episode three, you see mm. multiple panels of, yeah, Doc, yeah. of Tom Baker. Um, and then all of a sudden they go and they go, who am I? Who am I? And I'm going into regression. Um, basically, uh, instead of the Hal concept, where Hal decides and when he goes insane, Hal goes and kills everybody, uh, including the crew, he, you know, Neva doesn't do that, though it, it does kill the people that seem to be feeding the machine, the people, the technicians at the Tesh, who actually are in charge of trying to keep that machine going. Um, but he didn't kill the survey team. So in the mean, so I'm, I'm going to do this thing again. Um, I keep getting from different people. So what is Neva thinking? And I'm told what Neva does. Um, now I think it's very mysterious what Neva's thinking, and I'm I'm hoping that folks will speculate about what Neva's inner life might have been, because it's not a highly accessible inner life for us. I have some ideas about what Neva's thoughts may have been and how they evolved, but I find that we're we find him unpredictable. We don't know what he's going to do next. Um, we know he has some kind of insight, but we often, whereas we're, it's quite easy for us to assign motives, to assign knowledge to most characters in most Doctor Who scripts. I think this character is a very challenging one to assign motives or knowledge to. But I wondered if anyone had any theories of motives or knowledge. I, I just want to say something quickly because I got to run for mm. dinner. Um, sure. At, at the beginning of the show, 
I thought he was a crafty operator that, you know, said all the, you know, religious bullshit he was supposed to say because it was a control mechanism and he wasn't really a diehard religious nut. He, he, was, he was running his own political scheme. But then by the time you get to the end in the fourth episode, when he's on the ship in the Holy Land and realizing it's all not how he thought it was going to work out, I think he did become a religious purist and that he decided that now that he sees that his God is not who he thought his God was, then he would rather uh, kill the God and himself than continue to live in the future world that is so radically different than the world he's existed in. So to me, he starts as a, as a uh, super realist political operator. And then at the end, I feel like he was thinking, you know, I, this world has no place for me now and I need to get out. Uh, okay, I, thoughts. Yeah. I gotta go, folks. All right, thank I, you, Michael. Thanks, bye. I, I'm, I'm going beyond my religious education here, but I wrote my answer in at the beginning of the, into the text <laughs> thread at the beginning of the lecture when you first posed the question. Heritability is environmentally determined. Okay, where are we here? Uh, There's never instead of Neva because it's spot over. Ah, okay. Neva as Gnostic who discovers the Demiurge. Oh, that he's realized that there's, that this is the inferior God that made the corrupt material world, right? Yes. The Gnostic. He chooses to worship and follow the Demiurge and not the Father. (laughs) Okay. Because he I accepted. never thought of that one. But the thing is that the last time the doctor speaks to him through the radio link as the voice of God, yeah. he realizes it's the doctor and mm-hmm. not on, And he obeys anyways. He understands that, that the doctor and Zoanon are opposed and he chooses the doctor because the doctor is the authentic voice and face of God yes. in the world he has always known. Okay. Uh, any other any other Neva theories? Uh... I, I like that one actually. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, I, I, re- I realized I've mixed up the names. Uh, Neva is actually the priest. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. So what I was talking about was um, uh, Zeon or whatever his name, uh, Zoan. But, so on that. But, uh, but Neva, um, yeah, he obviously was a true believer who was crossed. Once he was crossed, kind of like a lover, he kind of turned on, you know, he turned on his God. Uh, and the inner processes uh, of that were pretty obvious. I mean, I, I think what was going on in his brain was he was seeing reality and then, oh, my God, this is not the world that I thought it was. This isn't uh, the paradise that I thought it was. And then it's actually truly evil. And then once he saw that it was truly evil and he thought in his brain, then he had to destroy it. That's how I thought. That's how I saw it. Yes. Okay. Well, can I say something? Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, I lost my Catholic religion as if I had been hit by a brick. It happened in one minute. 
and the pain has never left. I, I, will, I don't believe in Catholicism. I don't believe in any religion. I think they're all, first of all, I think that they're organizations. They're concerned about money and power and uh, keeping people in line. But I lost my religion like in one minute. And I'm beginning, and, and I saw him, you know, in this, and he killed himself. Yeah, I, I could see the logic there. Because and I have to say, I did the same thing as you. Uh, when I, I lost my religion when I was seven years old. When I found out what the Holocaust was, I stopped being Jewish. And it was... Huh. It was like a very odd response. Can you unpack that a bit? Well... <laughs> Here's a, the simplest way I, I mentioned that is I found out about the Holocaust. And so account, I was at a Jewish camp, a young Judean camp called Camp Kadima in Nova Scotia. And my counselor goes, because I, I wasn't behaving particularly well. And he goes, how many people do you think were killed? And I thought, okay, I'll use the $6 million man. $6 million. That's unbelievable, right? 6 million people. He goes, yeah, that's how many die. <laughs> and I heard that, that kind of went like, Okay, there's no God. You can't kill six million people of a religion that supposedly is protected by God. But, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. If you read the Bible, easy. that would surprise you a lot less. <laughs> yeah, I. I mean, yes. There's just a. It's a. It was a, hence my starting off with the abusive parent in the sky. Uh, I. Um, I think that there's. Um, Anyway, there, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. My I actually thought that Neva was that Neva developed a second incorrect theory that Neva figures out that this is a communications device. He figures out it's just sending voices at a distance, um, and he pro and my my thinking was he probably mistakenly took Leela's position that there was no Zoanon. It's just some guy pretending to be God at the other end of the communications thing. <clears throat> and at that point, so I, I, I uh, because, the, because the secularist atheist crew in the tribe are Zoanon deniers, not Zoanon explainers, um, I think, uh, you know, he then shifts to the premise that Zoanon, that Zoanna is a person and then shifts again when he's inside Zoanna and sees it as a malevolent force. Uh. So it, uh, um, <coughs> anyway, I'm wondering if we could uh, do some uh, last words, last thoughts. Uh, I need, uh, I'm in a meeting with Sean Holman in five minutes. So I uh, wonder uh, if we could cap at 90 this I, week. Yeah, can I just quickly jump yeah. in to say, I'm really sorry to have missed the Castro Velva uh, episode. Um, uh, and what a, what a great experience rewatching Castro Velva was. And it's one of the, the few episodes from that era that I, I would really love to see uh, a remake of with the same production design, but with um, a proper budget and um, modern filmmaking techniques. Because I thought from an art history perspective, that episode was really quite fabulous. That everything, like everything in that episode looked like a painting 
like a specific painting. And it was just, it was so delightful rewatching it. Yeah, that's something we totally missed during the uh, the Castroval. There's just there's so many like very specific like very specific uh, shots that are taken from very specific uh, paintings. Um, I, I'd have to kind of sit down and go through it very closely to to isolate them, but it was just really beautifully done. Well, it seemed like Escher esque, especially well, there's definitely two Escher I mean, paintings in it. One yeah, is definitely Escher, um, but there's there's a bunch of others as well, like the like the the scenes of the women at the well, for instance. That's uh, I think that's um, maybe a Rembrandt. Um, even the one even the one at the end where they're leaving Castra Velva and uh, and the crowd is reaching and pulling um, what's his name back down. Oh. Uh, I think that's I think that's a Goya. Yeah, you're yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So there's there's so many um, images or scenes through that that are um, that that are you know sort of like master level paintings kind of brought to life. And uh, I hadn't really clued into it all the first time around. So anyway, I I really enjoyed rewatching it, and I'm sorry I missed the episode because I would have loved to. Uh, Anyway, yeah, I think there are many places we could have gone with that. Thank <laughs> you.